Conversation with a Geographer. I'm Mike DeVivo, Professor of Geography at Grand Rapids Community College, and today we have Sarah Blue, Associate Professor of Geography at Texas State University. Sarah, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great. I think, um, you know, it's. I've been trying to get you here uh, for a while, and I'm really happy you're able to make it. As I start all of these interviews, really, I'm going to ask you, uh, what really inspired you to, to, to pursue geography? Was there, was there something in your childhood or was there somebody that was influential that, that made you think about geography? Can you talk about that for a moment? Sure. So I think in high school, when I was thinking about college and what I wanted to study in college, um, I wanted to do something that would make a difference, right? So I mm -hmm. I settled on either I wanted to like cure cancer or fix the the problems of pollution in the environment and everything. You know? And um, so I, I was a double major in geography and biology. And then I quickly realized that all of the biology students were trying to be doctors and I did oh, not oh, want the, where, where was this at? This was uh, in University high school? Denver. At Denver, University right. Denver. Mm -hmm. And they still have a great geography department. Sure. So that's where I did my undergrad. And um, so I really loved my geography classes. And um, we did a lot of, uh, we had a geography club that did a lot of hiking in the mountains, you know, and mm -hmm. a lot of outdoors stuff. And I was actually a physical geography major. It was kind of a general geography, mm -hmm. um, but I did more physical geography than anything else. And um, so I just loved it. I loved all the field trips and the, you know, we had a great geography club. It was a very small program, but some of my my advisors and my mentors are still there, Don Sullivan. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so just great people. And, you know, I loved it. And so then thinking about what I wanted to do for a career, um, <clears throat> I decided that I really wanted to focus on people more than like working in a lab. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I was, you know, trying to figure out what I was interested in. And, and I really was interested in immigration. And um, I realized that I could still do geography and do immigration. Um, so I actually have a degree. All three of my degrees are in geography. Um, so that's not super common. Not um, very common at all, actually, yeah. for especially yeah, for a from, faculty member in a PhD granting department. Yeah, yeah. So I switched from um, kind of physical geography to to people, human geography, and at, then I went to University of Minnesota for my master's. And um, you know they have a really great program. They sure. did back then, and they still do. And uh, I worked with Connie Weil, who's a Latin Americanist, mm -hmm. and um, so you know she really encouraged me to go do field work. And they had great funding for students to go do field work. And so I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but before I started my master's program, I went to Guatemala to to learn Spanish. Mm -hmm. And um, so I decided I wanted to go back to Guatemala to do um, research. So I, I started looking at, um, I went back and I interviewed some, some refugees that I had met, you know, when I was studying Spanish before grad school. And, um, and so that's, you know, I kind of got into Latin America and, um, you know, wanting to improve my Spanish and wanting to understand the region better. And, um, and then I got involved when I was a master's student in the Guatemala Solidarity Movement. Mm -hmm. um, so this was back in like the early 
mid 90s and there's still civil war going on in Guatemala. The United States had been very involved in the politics of Guatemala, Salvador, Honduras, right? And so I became very interested in that and and kind of, you know, in the activist community in Minneapolis. Um, and so then that, you know, so that was really a great experience. And then I decided that I wanted to teach. I really liked teaching, um, you know, when I when I did my master's and and um, yeah, I just liked academia. So I decided that I wanted to pursue an, uh, a PhD. So I needed to improve my Spanish because my Spanish was okay to talk to indigenous people, sure. um, who, you know, it was their second language, but I wanted to be able to talk to professionals and, you know, um, really do research in Latin America. So I just went to Minneapolis as a Latin American resource center. And I went there, this is before you could look stuff up online. Right. And, uh, I found, well, you said you the nineties. Uh, so a, yeah, a program, a Spanish program in Cuba. And, um, I thought I was trying to learn to dance salsa at the time. And I thought, well, I can, you know, learn how to dance and go, you know, improve my Spanish. And um, so I went to Cuba for the summer, which was, you know, kind of crazy. Um, Very unusual in the 90s as well. Yes. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't do anything online. Um, Cuba was even further behind, you know, than other places. And so I just showed up, you know, I just showed up and said, can I get to the university? I had to go through Cancun because you can't, mm -hmm. you couldn't fly right. directly from the U.S. to Cuba. Um, so yeah, that was a, the beginning of my, and that was the summer before I I was going to go to to UCLA to do my PhD. Well, and um, and, and so the vernacular just, spoken in Cuba is a bit different than in the land of the Maya. So oh, did yes. that create totally some confusion different. for you in yes. terms of I idioms mean, that you might have picked up that you couldn't employ in Cuba? Well, yes. I mean, a completely different culture, a completely different way of speaking and looking at the world. I mean, and so that was really so fascinating. And, you know, I mean, it does tap into what why I love geography, you know, because geography is so interdisciplinary. You can kind of draw on everything to, to understand the complexities that exist, you know. And so, you know, the poverty in Guatemala is shocking and upsetting. And, you know, I was out in indigenous rural areas where people really were impoverished and it just seemed like there was no solution. You know, it was just so depressing. I, I was like, how do I even begin? And then, then I went to Cuba and people are educated and, and they're healthy and, you know, yeah, they don't have shoes, but I'm like, I can bring you shoes. You know, <laughs> you know, but like I can't, you know, fix the education. You, you can bring them parts country. for a 57 Chevy, too. Exactly. I can bring some spark plugs. Right. You know, <laughs> but um, so that was wonderful. And I, you know, I landed in Cuba and I was like, oh, I found my people, you know, even though, you know, I'm from Minnesota and you wouldn't think <laughs> that that's, you know, but I just loved Cuba. I fell in love with that. I find people that go to Cuba, either they're. It, it's kind of off-putting to them and they don't want to go back or they like me they just fall in love and they want to go back and back and back and so mm. I, I certainly fell into that camp and then I um so so then I just kept I I was going to study immigration um at UCLA that was my intent um but then I just was so interested in Cuba um Judy Carney at UCLA actually mm -hmm. was like well why don't you go study in Cuba then just study Cuba and I was like oh awesome i can do that you know so 
So I I did, and I, and I ended up uh, marrying a Cuban man and and uh, going back and like living there for summers. And um, so I still study Cuba today. I still have lots of friends and family in Cuba, and um, but I've shifted my research to immigration now. But mm-hmm. yeah, so I got my my PhD at UCLA. My Spanish got very good because I spent all my time you know in Cuba. But yeah, in in Cuba they were like. Get rid of that slow Guatemalan accent. And the the soft spoken um, tone, really, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So now my Mexican friends make fun of me for my Cuban accent. But I'm like, hey, everyone has an accent, you know. (laughs) I can see that. So talk about your doctoral dissertation. It's pretty interesting with regard to... The, the the remittances and who the remittances benefited yeah, in so, terms of the different populations. Go ahead. So I first went to Cuba in 1996, and they were in the middle of this special period, or they were kind of coming to the end of it. And so the special period in Cuba is these years when the Soviet Union collapsed. And so suddenly Cuba was left without, you know, its main trading partner, and it had to kind of reorient itself to the world economy. And so one of the things that the Cuban government did to bring in foreign currency was to open up um, the US dollar. Before 1994 or 1995, it's been a while since I've looked at this, but um, Cuba, it was actually illegal to possess US dollars and people could go to jail if somebody from the US sent them dollars. But but the, but Cuba, in a, in a move to get more um, U.S. dollars in foreign currency, they opened up stores where you could only um, you could only spend U.S. dollars, and so you know they they really encouraged people to um, encourage their relatives to send money. So remittances was kind of a new thing um, when I first went there. It had only been for like a couple of years, and so as I started studying in migration and remittances, um, which is the money that immigrants send home to their families. I realized that it was having a different impact in Cuba than other places like Mexico. You know, most of the research was done in Mexico. And, you know, most people, Mexicans were coming to the U.S. working for several years. They'd be building a house back home. You know, they were basically supporting their families back home with the intent to go back home. But in Cuba, nobody was going back home. You know, so it was having completely different effects because the government, you know, controlled the economy in a very different way. And so remittances ended up, they ended up, the Cuban government ended up creating like a dual economy. And just last year, two years ago, they finally united, um, they brought the two currencies back together and they only have one currency now officially. It's a mess. But for a long time, they had two currencies, the U.S. dollar, they usually, they they later converted the U.S. dollar to what they called, um, well, it was a form of, it was a Cuban version of the U.S. dollar. So you had two Cuban currencies. One was tied to the U.S. dollar and the other was just the regular Cuban peso. And so that created these like this two tier system. If you had access to dollars, um, you know, you just had so much more financial, um, a better, you know, better living standard. Right. And so what I looked at was how remittances were contributing to socioeconomic equality in Cuba because this new it was all the people who's a lot of people had been middle class a lot of the the middle class and upper class left Cuba 
right earlier in the first couple of decades after the revolution. And so the people that stayed, there were people that stayed who really wanted to be part of the revolution and stay, um, or for whatever reason they decided to stay, but they had family who had left. And so oftentimes those people had nice houses and they had cars, you know, those 1950s cars, you know? And so when, when remittances opened up, those were the people who had assets to do like what we call now Airbnb, who had cars that they could use as taxis and that sort of thing. And so my thesis was that, and this is, you know, we did a survey and we interviewed a bunch of people. And so we found, I found that um, what Remittances was doing was reintroducing inequalities, racial inequalities, especially that the revolution had done a lot to ameliorate, you know, so all these, you know, because a lot of, um, you know, Afro-descendant Cubans really got ahead. They had a lot of gains during the revolution, right? And and they used education to get ahead. But when um, Ramenses came in, you know, it didn't matter how many PhDs or how highly educated you were, your salary was very low, right? So famously, doctors were only making $20 a month, right? And so if somebody, some relative sent you $100 a month, you know, I mean, that that was much, much better for your quality of life than being a doctor, right? And so it, it really disrupted um, things in society. And Cuba is still trying to work out, you know, the kinks on that, right? So that was the focus of my dissertation. And then later, I, I looked at doctors, in, um, so medical internationalism. And so, you know, I kind of looked at that as a form of remittance in a way, because the doctors were sending money home, you know, and this was a way for professionals to go abroad for a few years and then send money um, back home and improve their housing situation, maybe get a car, you know, um, be able to travel, save for retirement, right? So that's been my work in Cuba. It's, it's fascinating stuff, really, because we don't see that kind of contrast between racial or ethnic groups elsewhere where remittances play such an important role. I don't think, not in Latin America anyway, you know, yeah. and, and, and your study is really a, a pretty solid model for examining this phenomenon of remittances further. Yeah. Yeah. It's bringing in the social dimension, right. And the, the socioeconomic dimension, instead of just looking at like the development right. impacts, yeah, which is Indeed. what a lot of so 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 you got your doctorate at UCLA, and then where did you go after UCLA? So my first tenure track job was at Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, Illinois, mm -hmm. and I spent um, about five or six years there, and um, that was a great experience, a great first you know teaching experience. Um, I still have some wonderful friends up there at NIU. And then I got the opportunity to come down to um, Texas State. And so I came down to Texas State where I had to start again on the tenure clock. Um, but, you know, I wanted to, I wanted, you know, Texas, I never imagined living in Texas as a, as a Yankee, you know, mm -hmm. as a Northerner. I just, it never was on my radar as somewhere where I, it's funny because down here in Texas, my students think that everyone wants to be in Texas, you know? <laughs> so it's funny how, you know, how we're in our little bubbles here, you know, but the students here in Texas think that Texas is the best place 
And every, you know, and I tell them, you know, everyone thought I was crazy for going to Texas where I'm from, you know, <laughs> like, why, you know, um, but, you know, Spanish speaking, it's been wonderful. I'm close to the border where a lot of my research is, you know, I've, I've turned my focus to studying the U.S.-Mexico border. I used to struggle up in Illinois to get graduate students who spoke Spanish who could mm-hmm. be my research assistants, you know, um, and so down here, there's just lots of really great students who are bicultural and, you know, bilingual and who have an interest in immigration and things. So that's been really wonderful. So and it's a great department. I'm I'm really happy here at Texas State. Well, that's that's wonderful. Would you would you comment on the um, work that you do concerning the borderlands? Yeah. So I've always had this dual focus, um, kind of a research agenda in Latin America, mostly in Cuba. Um, And then I have also looked at issues in the United States and looking at Latino immigrants in the United States. And and my work is mostly focused on undocumented migrants Mm -hmm. and the struggles that they have with the uncertain legal status that they have. and so in two, after Hurricane Katrina, when I was at NIU, mm-hmm. I got an NSF grant to um, look at the Latino workers that had gone to New Orleans to rebuild the city after Hurricane mm-hmm. Katrina. So I had that study looking at subcontractors. Um, we went down, interviewed a lot, of, um, a lot of hotel workers, a lot of construction workers. And so I'd, I'd had that interest in... Um, uh, you know, undocumented Latino migrants in the U.S. and their experiences. And um, I've always had a bit of a policy focus. I've always been very interested in policy and how policy impacts people's lives. And so um, when I moved to Texas, then I thought, well, you know, I'll start looking at at something closer to home here at, um, at the border. So I um, I did some collaborative research with my colleague Rebecca Torres at UT. Sure. and. Uh, Wonderful geographer. Yes. Yeah. No, I've had an opportunity to work with some great people. And so we Mm -hmm. we did this research with unaccompanied minors. um, And Rebecca and I actually had been volunteering for a little while to go. So in 2014 was the big, you know, kind of concern with these young people that were all coming in, you know, and what what are we going to do? And so they were housed at military bases here in Texas. And um, so Rebecca and I had gone and volunteered a few times to translate um, and kind of do intakes for, mm-hmm. for legal organizations that were helping them, kind of co- trying to connect them to, to attorneys. And so um, we wrote a grant and we went down and did some research right at the, in Matamoros and Reynosa, mm-hmm. uh, which is in the Rio Grande Valley. Sure. And so we were focused Way down on the southeast. Yeah, like the very yeah. Mm-hmm. So Matamoros and Brownsville are kind of the right. you know, the very southern tip, um, the Gulf of Mexico there. And then um, Reynosa is just across from sure. McAllen, Texas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, we did a, we did our research with unaccompanied minors, focused on that um, for a couple of years, um, and then I just kept bringing students down to the border, and um, you know, then you know, just kind of following the policy and what was going on at the border. Um, and so then I eventually got this current grant, which is a another national uh, NSF grant that looks at insecurity and mobility or immobility at the border. So the fact all these policies, especially under the Trump administration, where he was trying to prevent asylum seekers from even entering the U.S. to be able to seek 
to, to petition, you know, to for asylum, they had to stay in Mexico. Because once you get into the U.S., you have the legal right to petition for asylum, to apply for it. And so, you know, it's not just the U.S. It's many countries have tried, you know, let's just keep them out completely, you know, try and stop them before they even get here so that they don't have the right to apply for asylum. And so, you know, a lot of people are then stuck after traveling for months sometimes and sure. losing everything, then they're stuck in these really dangerous border cities. You know, the northern Mexico border cities are some of the worst, you know, as far as being controlled by cartels and and migrants are just sitting ducks. You know, they they they're targets for kidnapping and extortion because they have phone numbers of people who care about them, who are willing to send thousands of dollars to get them alive across the border. Right? Well, there's so, that evidence of them paying for a coyote to get them as far as they got anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. So they've already paid a lot of money, um, become oftentimes very indebted. Um, and then and then often, you know, they get sort of, I don't, you know, it depends. There's so many scenarios and, and the, you know, we're not interviewing cartel. <laughs> it's not advisable. Um, and so, you know, we don't know exactly what, who, who is controlling what or, or how it all works. But um, I think, well, we've been told by some migrants, like if they can pay extra for more security, you know, and then not be passed over to the cartels. So at some point they have to pay, they have to pay um, to cross because the cartels now control the border. Um, it used to be different. It used to be you'd pay a coyote and they would take you all the way across. Mm -hmm. um, but now the coyotes don't control the border. You know, so if you want to cross the border, you pretty much have to um, pay the cartels in some in some way. So, um, yeah, that's what we're doing now is we're looking at insecurity um, and just kind of how U.S. how U.S. policy has led to more insecurity for immigrants at the border and and by stopping their mobility, you know, by making them sit and wait that um, exposing them to all sorts of dangerous situations, right? Well, so it's and it's really, really fueled the um, the power wielding opportunities for the cartels. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's I, what when, we're one has to say that if these policies to prevent this this landing for asylum into the United States, if these prevention policies were not implemented, the cartels may not be as effective in uh, preventing or controlling making borders. Money not, making money off of them. Yeah, I mean, they, they're making a lot of money off of immigration now. You know, it used to be primarily drugs, but now it's drugs and immigrants. You know, mm -hmm. um, they make a lot of money off of immigrants now. And, and in, uh, terms, in terms of your research, um, I know you have evidence of human trafficking do you do you see cartel influences in trafficking humans vis-a-vis -vis sex trafficking and how important that is to their enterprise as you speak i say this because you say that there used to be drug trafficking yeah but, but now you have human trafficking for labor and for sex yeah. have you gotten a handle on that at all well, we, you know, so our research is qualitative. Um, we go down and we interview immigrants and we interview and we survey them. Um, and then we also interview people who are advocates of immigrants. And we also, you know, anyone else who will talk to us. So we also talk to the Border Patrol. 
Um, and, you know, we try and talk to Mexican immigration, but we've talked to a lot of attorneys. And so some of that is is like secondhand. Um, but we have we have talked to, um, you know, I've I've interviewed several women who've been trafficked and. You know, it's very complex um, because you're you're turning yourself over when you pay a coyote, you know, there's no you know, there's no guarantee. There's no insurance. There's no safety, you know, and so. You're trusting these people. And and then even those coyotes, even if they're trustworthy, they might not have complete control, right? So at some point, you know, some cartel might come in and just kind of take all the migrants from a coyote, right? Um, and so it, it's a dangerous, especially for young women. Um, they often will pair up with men along the way just for safety, you know? Um, they they try and travel in groups, you know, the, the caravans and things it's for safety, right. Um, to protect people because it is, it, it's dangerous. And, um, yeah, especially for young, young women, um, it's extremely dangerous. And so they could be kidnapped and basically trafficked, um, at any point in their journey, you know, and I think, you know, it's probably not, a, it's not like, um, it's not the most common experience, I don't think, but um, it's certainly fairly common, you know, that that people they have terrible experiences, whether whether they're raped along the way, um, whether or not they're kept for a day or two um, in a really bad situation um, or whether it's actually trafficked, like, you know, for a couple of months where they're sold off and trafficked and, you know, made to do sex work or other kind of labor, you know, I've, all of those things can happen. Right. And so you know, a legal way for people to ask for asylum without putting them in so much danger and exposing them to so much vulnerability is really what we what we need. Right. And, and you know, the, the Biden government is trying to trying to address that. You know, there's all sorts of issues, but, you know, we're looking at like there's a, a new visa program for Haitians, Cubans, Nicaraguans, Venezuelans. Right. And these are countries that don't allow the U.S. to just deport people back. And then Mexico doesn't want the U.S. to just send people back. And so all these people were just, you know, gathering at the border. And so it was kind of a border management problem for the Biden administration. It wasn't so much a humanitarian fix, but it was more like, how can we not have so many people at the border? And then Fox News every day is, you know, saying crisis at the border, right? And mm -hmm. and so, um, you know, they've done this program where if you have a U.S. sponsor, if you can get your visa, you know, you have to get have a passport, you have to get a visa, but it's fairly streamlined and fast. Then, you know, 30,000 people a month could come in legally. So you could just fly into the closest airport to where you're going to stay with your sponsor. And you don't have to do that whole dangerous route, you know, through Mexico, through oftentimes, you know, the Darien Gap up through Central America and Mexico. And so that's been great. But now it's very backlogged because they don't have enough people to process those visas, you know, mm -hmm. so it's it's complex. It's it's very complex, and because Congress is so um, deadlocked, it you know it just doesn't seem like there's any you know pending solution to this. It's, it, it's at least not a permanent one. It's um, really really embarrassing for I think our our country to acquiesce yeah. to this this situation where little progress is being made. Yeah, it's, but I feel, uh, you know, our our research is doing 
the the important role of our research is kind of documenting mm -hmm. migrant experiences as a result of U.S. policy, you know, and and also just showing that this is a humanitarian crisis, you know, that's that the government likes to treat it as a national security issue, you know, and all the border patrol and the the concertino wire and the you know national guard troops and everything and really the people who are coming over are babies you know women carrying babies and whole families and mm -hmm. now they have to climb through wire as the last last you know and they do right so people are are coming but it you know they're they're presenting themselves to the border patrol officials they're not running away you know it's not like these are people you have to chase down and you know um they're not and so, you know, it, it's just a mismatched approach, right? And and all you hear from the government is, you know, policy, how do we keep these people away? You know, they're they're a threat to to us, you know, and and when you actually go down there, you know, and you see the people who are crossing, these are people who have left everything behind because their situation's bad. To you know? Comment on on what compels like what is this uh, eight eight what is a typical situation that would compel a young woman, maybe a woman with with a, with a baby, to yeah. risk it all to come to the United States. Right, and what we're seeing, um, you know, with the COVID, so so since 2019, there's actually been a huge increase in unaccompanied minors and families. Um, just this huge increase in, and and so there's just if you go to the border, that's what you see. You see kids and you see families and. And so it was a, you know, there's a lot of insecurity because of gang issues. And, you know, this, there was recently a, a presidential candidate from Ecuador was assassinated, you know. Um, so the cartel and the drug, um, you know, these Mexican cartels are spreading throughout the region. And so the, the governments in these countries often can't provide, you know, security to their own people. There's, there's no safety at home. And so especially people... So I'm good friends. I kind of sponsored one family that I met down there who I really, you know, bonded with, connected with, and I've kept in touch with them. And so I'll use them as an example. The dad is a taxi driver. Mom is a college educated, like she was a human resources manager for Dole in Honduras. So they had a, you know, a decent middle class life, but the extortion is so bad. And so they call it a war tax in Honduras. And so if you have any money at all, if you have a little store, if you have any money, if you have remittances coming in, the gangs target you and you might have to pay a, a tax to like three to five different gangs. They come by weekly and you have to hand them a pile of cash. And so when COVID hit, people didn't have business anymore. You know, um, taxi drivers had no, but but the cartels were still asking for their extortion fees, you know? And so a lot of people, it was very disruptive. So a lot of the Haitians, for example, were down in, in Chile and Brazil working. But then when the economic crisis because of COVID happened, you know, they, they lost their jobs. And so then they thought, okay, well, you know, they're dislocated already from Haiti. Haiti's in a major crisis, right? Uh, and run over by gangs and, and you know, disruption. And so they said, okay, we're going to try and come to the U.S., right? And so COVID was a big kind of universal economic disruption. And for a lot of places like Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, where they already had some political disruption, the governments, I think, clamped down a little bit, um, you know, and, and so then there was less freedom to, you know, protest or, you know, 
Um, and so, you know, that that led to more political reasons, right? But then also climate change, right? And so a lot of people, they, they, they're they not able to grow their crops or they're, they're victims of a natural disaster and they've lost everything, right? So it's a combination of factors usually, and everybody has a different story. But a lot, you know, I always think it has to be really bad where you are to, to make that journey, mm-hmm. right? To kind of suffer and put yourself and your family at risk to, to you know, to take the chance that you might be able to come into the U.S., right? Um, things are bad. And, and, you know, even if you're able to get ahead a little bit, the cartels are right there to threaten you, you know? And then when I was doing the, the research with the unaccompanied kids, a lot of them were leaving because, they, you know, they were being recruited into gangs and they didn't want to join a gang. And so basically they either had to leave or they had to join a gang and, they, and it was interrupting their school. They just wanted to study. And they said they couldn't because the schools were being like taken over by the cartels that they were recruiting the kids. And, you know, it's just it's very complex, you know, and and it's not, you know, it's hard for me to like see coverage on Fox News or something where they're treating these people like criminals, you know, when they're escaping these, you know, they're escaping the crime. They're escaping that these are the people who who just want to be. You know, they, they want to, to be in a safe place where they can their kids can get a good education and work hard and, you know, and not be threatened all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway. it, it seems like well, it seems like you found a niche and it's really it's really been part of the evolution of the field work you engaged in early on. And then those studies from remittances to immigration. It's it's really fascinating stuff. Are you working with anybody else besides Rebecca Torres on this? Oh, yeah. So Rebecca actually now has a different project. So she's still working at the border, but she's working um, on a different part of the border. So so Jennifer Devine, who mm-hmm. I think you also interviewed, um, she is, is on this NSF project with me. And then we're also collaborating with Marie Price at George oh. Washington University mm-hmm. and um, Elizabeth Chaco. And then with two um, colleagues who aren't geographers at UTRGV. Mm-hmm. Because we wanted to collaborate with um, people who are down in the Rio Grande Valley and who could bring students into the project. Um, so it's these three universities um, that we're working together on this project. And so we bring students down to the border and um, we kind of teach them how to do qualitative field work. And, um, you know, we're involved. So it's part of training um, Latino students um, to, to try and get more Latino geographers as well as part of this project. Well, this is very important work, not not just for geography, but for humanity. And I, I have to personally thank you for for taking on taking on this burden because it's, uh, again, very important. Um, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, these people, they're wonderful people. It's it's hard it's hard to go down and do the interviews because it's just really hard to hear these stories. And then you get to go sleep in your warm bed, you know, and, and these people are after, I don't know how many shots of whiskey or something, Uh, Yeah, yeah. you know, and you just know that these people continue in a really terrible situation, you know? Yeah. And so it's, it's hard, but at the same time we're documenting and, and kind of getting out, you know, a counter, a counter narrative. Well, being able to document the truth is very important, you know, and this is, Mm -hmm. this is one of our tasks as academic geographers as well. Right. Uh, Sarah, we have, we have about a minute to go here and I'll, um, 
ask you to think about the the path that you've trod and you know where you are today and all of the research that you've done do you do you have any any words of of advice for aspiring geographers, uh, undergraduates or graduate students, or or even colleagues in the field, do you have any any pearls of wisdom? We'll say. Well, you know, I will say that now, that at this point in my career, that I've been doing this for twenty years or so, the most rewarding work is the work that I do together, the collaborative work that mm-hmm. I'm doing with colleagues. It's just fun. It's exciting you know, to be able to brainstorm with really smart people, you know, and then I'm also involved in the Conference of Latin American Geographers mm-hmm. and the Race, Ethnicity, Place Conference. And so working with those people um, to, you know, create opportunities for people to come together and share their research and things. It's, you know, so the service part, people tend to avoid, mm-hmm. I think, because they think I have to, you know, do my research and everything. But But those connections and those networks actually make things so rewarding, you know, and so... I think that's something I guess I wish I would have known earlier. Um, It's nice to engage in these dialogues at conferences or even now. Yeah. And instead of thinking of it as competition, but to think of it as, you know, collaboration and learning from one another. Right. And and, um, really seeing what you like that other people are doing and thinking like, wow, you know, maybe that's something I could do as well. Right. And and actually talking to other people about what they're doing and and. yeah, so so making it more collaborative and um, inclusive and, you know, the more we're able to bring students in and work with them and sort of inspire the next generation, you know, that's really rewarding as well. Well, well, thank you. Thank you for offering, again, those, uh, those bits of advice. And so we'll have to conclude this episode of Conversation with a Geographer now. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike.